Love That Neighborhood is now on Patreon, which offers exclusive bonus content to members. For just 10 bucks a month, you can unlock bonus interviews, live streams, ebooks, and more. By becoming a Patreon member, you're helping us make more of the podcast content that you love and supporting our Urban Missions program. It's really easy to join. Just go to patreon.com slash love thy neighborhood. We'd love to have you with us as we explore discipleship and missions in our modern times. Again, go to patreon.com slash love thy neighborhood and sign up today. Love thy neighborhood. Okay. Oh, cool. oh definitely. <laughs> awesome. Discipleship and missions. Mission. For, For modern, modern times. What? Why is that battery dead already? Anyway. You are listening to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. My name is Jesse Eubanks, and today we're talking about popcorn and why popcorn is an essential piece for every office to have. Thank you very much. Tip your waitresses. See ya, suckas. (laughs) What did I just listen to? (laughs) What was that? Okay, so that was me doing a mic test. Uh Uh-huh. For our very first episode. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> That's so good. That's I'm, so good. I'm pretty sure I was testing plosives, which uh-huh. is why I'm like, popcorn, uh-huh. popcorn. Yeah, I've got to say, I don't know if your impersonation of me was very close, though. <laughs> I thought it was pretty accurate. <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay, so right now we're like sitting in this you know, nice studio that we have built. Yeah. But I don't think a lot of people realize, like, the original episodes, we were in the closet uh, uh-huh. in the basement of an abandoned building. Yep. We were in the cry room at church. Uh-huh. Um, and we were in the attic of an old house where there was no air conditioning. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that mic test was in your old office in, oh, the, in yeah. the attic. Oh my gosh! Yeah, my old office that used to be a bathroom. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, we've come a long way since. Yeah, because I think about like how far you have brought this since the beginning, right? Um, of me like working on the floor, <laughs> right? And like a lot of people don't realize, especially like those first several seasons, it was like just you, totally you by mm-hmm. yourself, writing, interviewing, editing, yep, editing. recording everything, start yep. to finish. It was you. Uh. You know, but as we announced last week, you are stepping away from the podcast. That's right. Yeah. Closing this chapter on life and and moving ahead to some other things. Yeah. 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 Well, we want to say a thank you to you. So today, uh, I want us to take some time to look back on all the work that you've done over the last six years. So we're going to reminisce. We're going to hear some of your favorite moments. Uh, I even have a surprise for you, a never before released episode that you made years ago oh man <laughs> uh so stay with us and let's celebrate rachel zabo you're listening to the love that neighborhood podcast today's episode farewell rachel welcome to our corner of the urban universe
Okay, so I don't think a lot of our listeners realize that, you know, the beginnings of this podcast actually started years before we actually launched the podcast itself. Yeah, that's right. So I was an intern with Love Thy Neighborhood, like back in like 2010, 2011. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, during my time serving here, you know, you learned that I had gone to school for mass communication. I had some audiovisual skills and you were like, hey, let's let's experiment with a podcast. And at that point, you know, in like 2010, I was like, what's a podcast? Because mm-hmm. those weren't a thing really yet. I think they were like not a big thing like for some people, but like I was pretty nerdy into them, you know, and I was like really enamored with This American Life and Radio Lab. Yeah, and... I guess podcasting was more like a niche thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I came to you and I like pitched this idea like, why don't you just do like a short story? Mm-hmm. And so you put together the short story. It yeah. was uh, called Word and Deed. Uh-huh. Um, and so actually, I've got that story right here. Oh, man, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> okay, so a little context for our listeners. The story takes place at one of our service site partners, Recenter Ministries, which is a homelessness mission. Uh, At the time, the ministry was actually called Jefferson Street Baptist Center or Jeff Street. So you're going to actually, in the story, hear me refer to it as that throughout the story. And, Rach, you actually don't appear in the story at all, uh, but you did all of the writing and the editing for it. Yeah, that's right. I I put the whole thing together. Okay, so here is Rachel's never-before-heard, very first audio project, Word and Deed. I met my friend Larry Smothers back in 2007 when he moved into Jefferson Street Baptist Center. Larry had a history of mental illness and substance addiction and had lived on the streets on and off for over 20 years. Larry came to Jeff Street desiring to change, desiring to see his life transformed and we quickly became friends. In today's episode, Larry will be sharing with us about the struggle of living with mental illness and about the hope he receives from the gospel of Christ. I came to Jeff Street in December of 2007. I have a history of alcohol and drug addiction. And, uh, well, I have a bipolar disorder. I have an abnormal brainwave. And there are certain chemicals that are secreted in the brain that I don't possess. And I take medication to secrete for me the chemical that I lack. I suffer sometimes depression. Uh, When I'm suffering, I don't see those warning signs. For that, they're outside signs that other people see and bring to their attention. Uh, There's a lot of confusion that sets in with depression. And uh, your personal hygiene declines and your intake of food declines. You, some people don't eat at all, others eat very little. And it's very rapid, it comes on you very rapidly. And it, uh, it's progressive. The first time that Larry lived at Jeff Street, he was here with us for over a year. He graduated from our Fresh Start program and then eventually moved into our permanent supportive housing. Over time, Larry really desired to move out, and so he did. He moved out, he got his own apartment, got his own place. But like a lot of folks, he lived by himself, with no one nearby, with no friends living in the building with him. I was isolating, and uh, 
I had too much time to myself where I would spend hours in thought versus actions and entered a depressed mode and I uh, started shutting down the people around me and the things around me and uh, I eventually became sicker through that. This is the point in the story where things get pretty dark. One night I received a phone call from an unknown phone number. When I answered, it was Larry calling from the psychiatric ward at the Veterans Hospital. Larry told me that he had been in his apartment just a few nights before and that he had started to hear voices. And these voices were telling him to do violent things to the fellow tenants in the building. He said that he would lay on his bed and he would just stare at the ceiling, counting the bolts in the ceiling fan. His attempt to stay connected to reality, but it wasn't working. I became afraid of what I might do in that state of mind, so I opted to go to the hospital instead. A lot of that period was not of my decision-making process. A lot of it was due to my depression and maybe areas of schizophrenia. Though I'm not diagnosed that, I'm sure it played a part. When I left the hospital that afternoon, I walked out to my car and I closed the door and I began to weep, tears running down my face. And I wept because Larry seemed so confused and so lost. But even in the midst of that despair, this other thing rang true. The book of Psalms says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. We're not here alone. And the cross just keeps me focused on reality versus what my mind wants to tell me is going on. It's a frightening thing to know the reality of the fact that you are mentally ill. And apart from the cross, there's very little help available to the mentally ill. Even though Larry knew that he couldn't even trust his own sense of reality, he believed that the gospel was true. He believed that the gospel was powerful enough to reach him even in his darkest place. Eventually, Larry was discharged from the hospital and returned to his apartment. It took some time, but we were able to get him out of his lease. He moved back into Jeff Street and was a part of our newly restructured Fresh Start program. His doctor changed his medications. He became involved in the life of our church community again and eventually graduated from Fresh Start. He moved into Jeff Street's permanent supportive housing where he still lives now. According to Larry's older sister, this is the healthiest she has seen him in almost three decades since his mental illness set in. When asked her why, she gives the credit to being in community. Larry agrees, but then goes one step further. I'm still susceptible to the depression. And here at Jeff Street, I'm, I'm not isolated. I'm not, I'm not off to myself where I'm left to the own devices of my mind. I have people I can interact with here who can notice the warning signs of my depression and they can keep me in touch with reality. And we do have assurances from the cross and no matter what occurs to me in this life and the life I have left, it'll be all right. Man, 
That's crazy. Yeah, that's 11 years ago. 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. Wow. Here's here's what I love listening to that though is like you can hear glimpses of what's to come. It's like mm-hmm. it's like we had not figured it out. Like we, you know, I sound yeah. very like monotone. It's kind of rough. It's, it's, it's pretty choppy. Rough. It's choppy, but like you can tell like what we're aiming for. Yeah. Like there's there's glimpses of the style mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what's it like hearing that, you know, as like your first project compared to what you went on to produce later? It, uh, <laughs> I think it's it's hard not to critique it. Sure, yeah. Like, yeah, it's hard not to be like, well, I would, I would do this differently now. I would do that differently now. Sure. But I think as a first project, like like you said, like I think the the heart behind it mm-hmm. is there. And I think that, that comes through, even though it's a little like rough around the edges. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I see what I was going for. And, mm-hmm. it, and, it, and I think it was a good like first effort. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, your heart... And your taste both sort of come through yeah. in that in that project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and we've so uh, we've perfected that <laughs> since then. A little, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we've come quite a ways. Like you've worked on the official LTN podcast since 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that time, you've made over 60 episodes. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of your favorite moments over the years. Okay, so. Every time that we start to explore an episode, you start off by doing a lot of research and reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, so what has been one of your favorite you know, subjects that you have had the opportunity to do research and reporting on? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. You know, I've done a lot of subjects and a lot of interesting subjects. I think, I think probably one of my favorite ones that I just found really fascinating and I didn't know much about before starting the episode was our episode on the evangelical industrial complex. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's that was a fascinating one. You know, we did that in partnership with the Holy Post and Sky Jatani. What about that topic in particular like grabbed you? Yeah, I think just the the depth and the pervasiveness of it, like in in doing research about it and not knowing much about it, but then kind of doing some digging, finding stories, just realizing how big of an issue that is, but it's one that's not really talked about much. I think I was very fascinated by like, oh, this is something people need to hear. Like this is something that needs to get out there and be brought to people's attention. It was almost like a I've discovered this thing and you all need to know about it mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In that episode, I remember I was really, really fascinated by Ingrid's story. So we had a woman named Ingrid Schluter on um, and she was able to kind of share her own experience in coming in contact with the Evangelical Industrial Complex or EIC, as we call it in the episode. And I remember being very fascinated by her candid responses about her experience with it. So let's listen to part of that. Uh, So here's the story of Ingrid Schluter from Where the Gospel Meets the Evangelical Industrial Complex. So Ingrid spent most of her life working in ministry and Christian radio, to be precise. 
I had been working in since uh, actually 1988 and had done both production and co-hosting of a national talk show called Crosstalk. So eventually Ingrid leaves that job and goes to work part-time for another show called The Janet Mefford Show. A lot of what I did had to do with current issues, breaking news stories, that kind of thing. We were dealing with everything from culture war issues, education, um, all the changes that were being made in our country, apologetics, dealing with the defense of the faith in a pluralistic society and things of that nature. Actually, that sounds a lot like this podcast and my podcast, The Holy Post. Yeah, they were using their journalism and their Christian faith to look at current issues. But then there's this one day, Janet, the host of the show, she comes to Ingrid with a new story that she wants to air. She alerted me to the fact that she was working on a plagiarism case, a plagiarism situation with Mark Driscoll. Okay, so for those that don't know, Mark Driscoll is a pastor who's been the subject of a lot of controversy, including abuse of power, bullying. He talked a lot about sex from the pulpit and in his books. He's perhaps best known as a pastor of Mars Hill Church, and he was actually removed in 2014 due to formal complaints of abuse. But this situation that we're talking about with the plagiarism, it actually happened a full year before all of that. Okay, so what was he actually accused of plagiarizing? Okay, so Janet was already scheduled to have Driscoll on her show for an interview. Uh, So in preparation for that interview, she read what would have been his latest book at the time, A Call to Resurgence. That's the name of the book. And in that book, Janet saw 14 pages of plagiarized material taken from another source that she was familiar with. Again, here's producer Ingrid. She also interviewed Mr. Driscoll and with him on the radio, on the recording of the program and the airing of the program, asked him point blank and allowed him to respond to the fact that she identified whole passages of his book from other people. Wow. So she asked him on the air. That's a pretty bold move. Yeah. In addition to bringing it up in her interview, Janet also posted about it on her website. Okay. So Sky, what would your response be if you heard a big name pastor accused of plagiarism? Well, I would probably want to look into it to see if it was valid, if it was true or not. Yeah, that is the common, normal person response. Like, I've heard this accusation. I want to investigate it. I want to figure out if it's true. So Ingrid saw no problem with the reporting that Janet had done. The facts supported her. The evidence Janet assembled was unassailable. Here's the problem, though. The radio network, they did not agree. The response of her bosses was that this was unacceptable. She was told to take it down off her website where she had, you know, proven what she was alleging and was also told to apologize on the air for the interview. Okay, well, the Bible has a thing or two to say about what to do with accusations against leaders, and I can understand why some were uncomfortable with the way Janet handled that on the air. But that's separate from the accusations themselves about whether or not there was plagiarized materials in Driscoll's book. I mean, you look at this whole thing and it's kind of just strange. Like here's a Christian radio network with shows committed to seeking the truth. Janet's evidence was good. The reporting was clean. Eventually what ended up coming out was that Driscoll's team had made a mistake. The story is that they did not cite his notes correctly and that it was an honest mistake that he did not mean to do it. But it still stands that Janet's accusation of plagiarism was true. Intentional or not, plagiarism did take place. And her radio network essentially responded by saying, we want you to go on air and apologize and say that your accusation was incorrect. 
it just seems like there had to be more going on behind the scenes. I mean, well, you're right. I mean, here's the thing. Janet Show was part of Salem Radio Network. Driscoll's book was published by Tyndale House. And it was later reported that Tyndale House had some sort of media partnership with Salem Radio Network. So another way of saying this is that these two entities were business clients. They were making money off of one another. Yeah, they were making money off of one another, and they were probably both making money from Mark Driscoll in the sale of his books. So there it is. That is the evangelical industrial complex at play. So we need to ask ourselves, are we seeking comfort or the status quo, or are we really interested in seeking the truth? Because within the EIC, it's it's all about promoting the big names that bring in lots of money and sometimes silencing anything or anyone who gets in the way of that. Which is exactly what happened with Ingrid and the Janet Mefford show. They started receiving hate mail, getting bashed on Twitter, receiving little to no support from Christian media. And even though Ingrid was just a part-time producer on the show, she was the one that was caught in the crossfire. I was very displeased with any broadcast company that tells a, a talk show host, particularly one that claims to be Christian, that would not be immediately concerned about a plagiarist being promoted as a great spiritual voice speaking into the culture and publishing books. And I mean, uh, I'm not comfortable with working in that setting. You know, Ingrid was in a tough spot because at the time her husband was looking for work and her family needed that small income Ingrid was bringing home. But Ingrid just couldn't justify a paycheck if it came with looking the other way when there were issues or promoting big names at any cost. And so less than a month since the report had first aired, Ingrid resigned from the show. And I'm assuming Janet did as well? Yeah. So here's a part of the statement Ingrid gave with her resignation. It says, I was a part-time topic producer for Janet Mefford until yesterday when I resigned over the situation. All I can share is that there is an evangelical celebrity machine that is more powerful than anyone realizes. You may not go up against the machine. That is all. Mark Driscoll clearly plagiarized. And those who could have underscored the seriousness of it and demanded accountability did not. That is the reality of the evangelical industrial complex. Yeah, I loved your reporting on all of that. I thought that it was such clear examples of what can happen in some pockets of Christianity when it gets mixed in with how can we make a buck off of this whole thing. Yep, yep. Okay, so here's the other thing, too. Every time that we do an episode, you actually do a bunch of interviews for each episode. And Mm -hmm. most of those interviews make it into the episode. Some of them don't. How many people roughly do you think that you have interviewed over the last six years? Yeah, I would say probably in the vicinity of over 150 people. Oh, my gosh. And I'm thinking, too, about, like, 150 people, like, you got to do the research ahead of time so that it's informed. You're asking the right kinds of questions. You have to be really attuned to your subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say that uh, I heard an adage that said uh, a good interview usually feels like a good counseling session. Mm-hmm. Like there's a sense in which like you have to really go in. Like that's that is a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked with all kinds of different people. And it, that's been a really fun aspect of this job is just talking with folks and hearing their stories. Yeah. Any stand out to you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some that immediately come to mind, um, like I think about Kinshasta, um, who appeared in our episode on abortion um, and just her her willingness to be so candid and honest about 
her story um, and just being very descriptive about that. I remember sitting in that interview. I mean, that was in our first season. And so I was kind of new, new to the job and just thinking like, wow, I'm surprised that she's like opening up this much to me. Yeah. Um, I think about Jane Gumbiner is another one that comes to mind. She was in our episode on dementia. And she was just like the sweetest lady. She was like a referral from another person that I didn't know. So I was like, oh, I don't know how this interview is going to go. And she was just so sweet and, and caring and just honest. You know, I'm, I'm a, a stranger. She had a, she had a spouse with dementia. Yeah. 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 Her husband um, had Alzheimer's. And, you know, she doesn't know me. And she's just so sweet and mm. just honest and open. So... Those are some that come to mind, uh, but I think there's there's one in particular that that really stands out, and I found particularly touching um, in in speaking with this person. Well, hold that thought, and we're going to explore that when we come back. So stay with us. Hey, listeners, it's Hannah. Over the past seven years, we've had over 300 alumni serve in our Urban Missions program who've come from all around the United States. Hey, this is William Pratt from Greeley, Colorado. Jessica from Knoxville, Tennessee. This is Daniela from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Nick from Paducah, Kentucky. They've provided over 130,000 work hours free of charge to local ministries. And along their service journey, they have the opportunity to experience deep community and discipleship that prepare them for their next season of life. Like Vicki Shaw from New Jersey shared with us. It really helped me to grow, and not just to grow as an adult, but to flourish as one, to learn about the passions that I have and to live it out in my everyday life. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30 through the areas of service, community, and discipleship. You'll grow in your faith and your life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. It's the Love the Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. Today's episode is Farewell, Rachel. So we're sitting here with Rachel Zabo as she concludes six years of producing this podcast. You've been sharing some of your favorite moments from your time as a producer for the show. Uh, You said that there's one interview in particular that stands out. Yeah. So this is an interview from our episode on foster care. Mm. And it was a guy named Jim Shields. Well, let's take a listen. Okay, so here's Jim Shields from Where the Gospel Meets Foster Care. My mom was never abusive She, in the sense that she would hit us or strike us, but it was just uh, a neglect. Uh, the house was, um, you just imagine a hoarder with four children, laundry, dirty laundry everywhere, cats. There was just always cats and not well-maintained. So it was always, it, it smelled bad, it was dirty. We would go to school, we would literally have cat feces on our clothes. And you were so, I guess, numbed by it that you didn't even notice it until you got to school and got teased about it. So it was just a very dirty environment. And while his mom wasn't abusive, Jim had other family members who were. So my earliest memory was being sexually abused in a pickup truck. I was uh, preschool age. And then it happened, you know, repeatedly until um, you know, throughout preschool. And then when his mom got married, Jim's stepdad, he was also abusive. You know, the abuse started with him, the physical abuse. 
being the oldest, I sort of took the brunt of it because he, you know, he would look to me to be the quote unquote man of the house when he wasn't there. And so around eight years old, Jim is basically taking care of the house, watching his siblings, doing all the dishes, making all the meals. A lot of cooking, a lot of cleaning, a lot of, you know, and then obviously at some point you got to do some schoolwork in there too. And the other, we were sort of a Lord of the Flies environment with, you know, four kids, you know. So people talking about, you know, the best shoes and a cool jacket and great music. And I'm like, it's cool that I get to eat today. And it's cool that I didn't get the crap kicked out of me by the people that are supposed to be caring for me. And as Jim grew older, he started becoming aware of his circumstances and his reality. And he no longer wanted anything to do with it. It was like when I turned like 14, 15, I was really cognizant of what was happening. I was more mature than most of the adults I knew at that point. All of the men that were in my life had been, with very few exceptions, were, you know, using or abusing me in some way. And I just said, that's not going to happen anymore. If it kills me and it knocks me out or gets me killed, I'm not letting another person put their hands on me. And so Jim ran away from home. Eventually, the cops found him. And once the situation at home was assessed, Jim was taken before a family court judge. I do remember the judge asking me, do you want to go to a group home or do you want to go to an individual a foster home? It would be like a family. I didn't know what family meant, but I knew that in the in the group home, it was more like a it felt like a jail, be hard to escape. But if I was in a house, now that I can run away from. So I remember thinking, yeah, put me in a foster home, dummy. You know, the first chance I get, I'm out. So Jim was placed in his very first foster home, and this foster home was on a farm. It was a steer farm, and they were looking for young boys who were, you know, between the ages of 12 and 15 that really were strong enough to do the labor, but not really savvy enough to understand that they were really using the system. And, you know, it took me about a week to sort of figure out what their game was. And one day the father laid a hand on Jim, and you remember that was something that he vowed would never happen again. And he sat on my chest and hit me in the face. And I looked him in the eye and I told him, I know where your guns are at and I'm going to kill you. And I meant it. It was that commitment that I made to myself never to let another person abuse me or touch me. I never want to hurt any other human being, but I'm not willing to be hurt. After that, Jim's caseworker came. And when she found out what was going on, all the foster kids were removed from that home, including Jim. Jim was placed with a new foster family, a lady named Carol, and her husband, Gary. He was a little short guy who worked at Bethlehem Steel as a crane operator. I remember sizing him up. I'm like, it's a little guy. I'm like, man, I can take him. You know, I can get out of here, you know. And again, within the first five or six minutes, I'm, I'm already thinking of my escape. And can I take this person? How would I do that? How do I escape danger? Because I was so in tune with I'm in danger regardless of where I was. So the caseworker leaves Jim with his new foster dad, Gary. And Gary tells Jim he's got something for him. Gary said, all right, come on, I want to take you out of the garage. And I'm like, all right, here it comes, right? I'm getting ready. Here comes the fifth, you know? And he showed me this row of dirt bikes. And uh, he said, I, I understand you like motorcycles. I said, yep. I said, I do. He goes, all right, pick one. And I'm like, I'll play your game. And I pointed this yellow two-stroke Yamaha dirt bike. And he goes, he said, that is your responsibility, he said, you're going to pay for the fuel. You'll pay for all those things. You'll maintain it on your own. If you break it, you're going to pay for it. He goes, now, if you get in trouble, you're not riding it. And then he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, I'll never lay my hands on you. And um, that family welcomed me in. 
I felt safe. Jim stayed with Gary and Carol until he turned 18. At 18, you age out of the foster care system, which means the state no longer compensates the foster parents. And since throughout his whole life, Jim had never been wanted without any conditions, he figures Gary and Carol won't want him anymore either. So, you know, why would they keep me? By that time, I wanted to stay there, but I'm like, who's gonna, like, they're not getting paid. Why would they keep me? There's no more check for them. So Jim starts packing up his things. That night, Gary and Carol pulled me to the kitchen table and they said, why do you want to leave? I said, I don't, I don't want to leave. I said, but you know, state's going to quit paying. They're like, Jimmy, you're part of the family. We don't have you here for the check. We love you. That changed me. I don't want to say my mom didn't love me. She didn't know how to do that. This family who had no incentive to do so cared not only for me, but they had been fostering. As I understood it, for like 19 years, I was one of their last kids that they were ever going to bring in. And uh, I said, you're part of the family, Jim. Why that story? Um, I think just the emotion behind it. So in, in audio stories, there's kind of two two main things you want to go for and that's narrative and emotion and Jim really brought both of those in in his interview he was just very descriptive in his in telling his story but then just I mean you can hear his voice crack and and you can hear him kind of sniffling just like he's so moved by how God intervened in in his life and showed his love through you know, his, his foster parents that it just, yeah. I mean, I remember sitting with tears in my eyes listening to him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've recorded that years ago and, uh, and I've heard it many times. And even now listening to it all these years later, I'm like, I'm very moved by it mm -hmm. because it's so horrible and then so beautiful. It's redemptive. It's so redemptive. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay, so in the process of creating an episode, you interview people, you report on things, but then you bring it all together and you write these scripts, mm -hmm. right? And so you have written over 60 scripts. So let's talk a little bit about writing. Sure. What stands out to you? Oh, man, this is easy. Easy. Hands down, probably my favorite writing project was our episode called the converted gambler. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here's what's here's what's funny. Okay, so this this episode was about Steve Holcomb, who is the founder of Recenter Ministries. It's the fourth oldest homeless rescue mission in the country. It's based here in Louisville. Yep. And you wrote like this whole script. You were so energized about it. Well, because it was a different project. Yeah. Then it was kind of a different format than yeah. we usually do. We were kind of copying this other show called The Memory Palace. And so it was a very different feel. It's kind of more literary, like mm -hmm. audiobook style than mm -hmm. our typical just like casual conversation. So it was it was kind of an experiment. Mm -hmm. So you send me the Memory Palace and you're like, hey, check out this other podcast. This is kind of the influence. And then you like give me the script and I come in. How would you describe my 
disposition as I'm attempting to deliver that script. You hated it. I you hated did not it. get it. You, I didn't understand you were like, it at all. I, I don't like this at all. You were like, I can't deliver this. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of a grump about the whole thing. You were. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I remember like years ago when I was uh, making music, I remember a buddy of mine said, um, he was a producer, and he said, the artist sees something that the rest of us can't. And it's something deep in their instincts, and you just have to let them go for their vision all the way. Like, let them ride it to the last station, because they're going to bring something that the rest of us can't see. I remember, like, in that moment feeling like, Rachel sees something in this that I can't perceive. Mm. And uh, and then you went and you delivered it. And then I remember, like, the month after, like, I kept hearing from different listeners, like, that was fantastic. That was so good. <laughs> and I was just like... That was all, Rachel. I, I was I was not seeing it, and so uh, so I, I'm very pleased to say I was very wrong uh, and and very blind on that one. So let's uh, let's listen to that. So this is a clip from the episode, the converted gambler. It happened during a fishing trip. Steve and a buddy had gone up to Illinois, where supposedly the fish were biting particularly well that season. And as they were walking along the docks back to their lodging after a full day of fishing, they could just make out a figure sitting in the dark. That figure pulled out a knife from his boot. I heard some gamblers have come to town, he said. He was referring to Steve and his friends. And I can whip any man along the Ohio River. It was a threat, a challenge to a game of cards. Steve felt he had no option but to accept. The three men walked to the nearest barroom, and in due time, they had plenty of alcohol and a game of poker at the ready. It's important to know that after all his years of practice, Steve was a good gambler. He could hold his own, especially against this stranger who seemed to be all sass and no skill. And that is how Steve was able to notice during the game that the man was holding back certain cards in the deck. He was cheating. Luckily, Steve also had a good poker face. He made no indication that he knew what the man was doing and simply made his bet. The man saw his bet and raised it, to which Steve raised it again, to which the man raised it again and again. And back and forth it went until both men had all the money they possessed out on the table. The man revealed his hand. Four aces. That's a good hand. A really good hand. In fact, Steve himself said, that's a pretty good hand. But I have a better one. And he hit the man in the head, knocked him to the floor, took his money and ran. And that was all it took. The rush of gambling all came back. The images of his boyhood fascinations, those gamblers dressed like princes, the allure of the steamboats. That was the life he wanted, not fishing in Podunk shipping port. He didn't even tell Mary where he was going. She was at home with their firstborn son. From Illinois, he jumped on a steamboat, headed to New Orleans, and started his second round of steamboat gambling excursions. What's crazy is that you didn't even have the opportunity to tell his whole story. Like, his whole story is nuts. Oh, there's tons of stuff I had to leave out just for the sake of time. Yeah. 
Yeah, it should totally be like a Hollywood movie. It is oh, so absolutely. good. Absolutely. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating story. Yeah. So at the end of every episode, we try to address this question, right? Where is the gospel in this topic? And what difference does the gospel make in how we approach this topic? Do you have a favorite ending to an episode where we explored how the gospel applies to a topic? Mm, yeah, that's tough. I think the one that readily comes to mind that was kind of memorable is our ending to our episode on environmentalism. Mm. Because, you know, that episode ended on a note of just such awe and, and wonder at creation and at the God who cares for creation. I think that one sticks out just in the sense of of wonder and, and awestruckness. Yeah. Yeah, I love that episode. I, I think there's so much just beauty in that episode. So, okay, here is the ending clip from Where the Gospel Meets Environmentalism. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What is a moment or time when you've been in nature and you were just awestruck at the wonder or the beauty that was around you? Hmm. So one time I went camping with some friends. Uh, we were in California. And we're driving through California and we're passing Sacramento. It's fairly like the lowlands. But then we begin to slowly climb through the mountains. We go around these windy roads and we climb and we climb and there's evergreens everywhere and mountain you know, chains starting to surround us. And eventually we come to this cabin. There's a little lake at this cabin and it was like the most perfect blue water. Like you could see all the way down through this lake. And uh, we would go like jump off the dock and go for a swim first thing in the morning. We're so far from electricity at this point. Shortly after we'd put the fire out, I'm laying out in my sleeping bag and I'm staring up at the night sky. And there's just stars. I mean, just thousands of stars. And over and over again, we could just see shooting stars passing by. And it was just this moment where you began to realize the universe is so big. I roll over and I begin to look at these evergreen trees and this lake. And I can literally just hear the sounds of insects, you know, all around me like an orchestra. And it just made me begin to realize how vast this planet is. And one of the things that really struck me was 
How is it that this God of this universe, how is it that he knows me and sees me? And how is it that he loves me? Because unlike this planet and unlike these stars, I've rebelled against him. And yet somehow in the mystery of God's love, I'm not disposable to him. He's redeeming me, he's changing me, he's making me new. That's definitely also true for the world that he's created. God loves all that he has created and he is making it new. And he is telling us that we are caretakers of this good world that he's made. Yeah, that's like one of my favorite uh, sound design moments too. Yeah, so another reason why I really like that clip is because that's one of the first projects, or actually maybe the first project that Anna Tran, our audio engineer, worked on. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so Anna's here with us now. Yep, we've brought her into the studio. Hey, guys. Hey, Hey, Rachel. Okay, so you have been working closely with Rachel ever since we brought you on as an engineer back in 2020. What a time to join us. what a time. Uh, Anything stand out to you as you've worked with Rachel? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that that was one of your favorite soundscapes. I remember working on that episode. It was so exciting. It was like the first time I would get to cut my teeth on some like major piece of sound design that's actually meant for something, not just for, you know, my creative side projects. Mm. So I remember I was in my bedroom apartment, like I was in the middle of packing. So there are like banker's boxes stacked up and my desktop computer is sitting on, you know, my little desk and I'm like in a really cramped I don't know, situation. It sounds like the beginnings of this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) So similar. Yeah, I think one thing I've so appreciated about working with Rachel is just like her writing and how much I trust Rachel's writing. Like Mm. coming on, I knew I was editing, but I really wanted opportunities and moments for sound design, just like the ones you've heard. There have been just so many moments where I've really gotten to dig into a scene in an episode, to expand on it, to amplify it with sound design. And I really trust Rachel to bring that to the podcast. That's been just such um, an honor and pleasure to be able to take Rachel's writing and to be able to um, have a lot of creative freedom and to run with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It's been really fun working with you and giving you those opportunities to kind of run with the sound design and mm-hmm. kind of do your thing. Yeah, it's been so fun. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. miss that. Yeah, and as we mentioned uh, last week, you are taking over the producer role. So you're going to mm. cut your teeth on some writing. That's here, right. Here pretty soon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Well, let me talk just for a second then about that, you know, because I I don't think that the majority of listeners realize like so much of what I say um, is you writing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of times when I'm speaking on the podcast and I'm throwing out stats, like I've read all these things, you know, so often like that you've done all that research, you That's know, right. and, um, and what I really appreciate it is like, it's hard to write for a, another person, you know, you, you have this ability and this gift to to write for other people. And in so many ways, like you have over these last six years, like you've given me a voice mm. or maybe another way of saying it is so often when I speak, it's not just my voice people are hearing. They're hearing yours as well. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's just been such a gift 
to have somebody um, just labor well uh, and and want to craft something beautiful and good and that is uh, so thoughtful and uh, and then there's like that X factor of taste and like so much of your taste is so wonderful and excellent and you know now that uh, our friend Mike Cosper has like done the rise and fall of Mars Hill like there are finally other people entering into this narrative journalism space yeah. in Christendom but really in a lot of ways like when you first started doing this six years ago like you were kind of first in the room you know uh, yeah. you know we can go back and do like oh Adventures in Odyssey kind of or like Unshackled you know but like in terms of a modern podcast trying to do narrative journalism like you were kind of first in the door and yeah. uh and I just want to celebrate that and recognize like it's hard being a trailblazer and uh and in a lot of ways you've you've really pushed things forward and we're we are all very grateful for you yeah mm-hmm. thank you yeah it's been it's been super fun yeah it was such a cool thing to come as an intern in 2017 kind of at the beginning of it I was only there for a summer but it was like the budding part of the tree that I could see and was so excited for and there was no one else that I could find doing the type of narrative audio journalism that you were doing yeah yeah so for me like on the one hand there's a part of me that's like I'm totally okay with chapters have to come to a close and I want to make peace with that but it is also terribly you know we're going to miss you is all yeah. I'm just trying to say. I mean, we've just spent hundreds of hours sitting across from each other, wrestling with topics, uh, arguing, sometimes overtly, sometimes passive aggressively, uh, <laughs> and trying to really wrestle with what does it mean to follow Jesus in this complicated culture? And, yeah. and for me to have another creative person in the room that is willing to really put up their dukes and get in there and do the hard work of wrestling through these things has been invaluable. Um, It's hard to overstate how much you sort of working in the shadows so often nearby has has really changed my life. Um, Mm. In a just world, you would have gotten a lot more credit for a lot of things. And so I'm just very, very grateful for you, and uh, we're going to miss you, and we're we are also excited just to see what the Lord does in the next chapter of your life. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm also excited to see kind of where you guys are going to take the podcast from mm-hmm. here. Like, I think it'll be it'll be different and interesting. I think for me to just be a listener now and kind of tune in and see, like, oh, what. What are they making now, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm excited, you know? I'm excited for this next season. And uh, it's kind of fun to reimagine things and go, okay, all bets are off. And yeah. so, yeah. like, where are we going to go with this? Yeah. So I think I think that'll be a fun adventure for me to just kind of follow along and, and see where, where this goes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're excited for what's next for you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, just as a side note for the listeners, this is my farewell episode, but I'm actually still going to appear in a couple episodes mm-hmm. after this just because you know production it, it it runs over and so um you'll still hear me here and there so mm-hmm. yeah just just want to note that but with that being said Anna I officially pass the baton the podcast baton to you great yeah I receive it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm just super excited and really honored to be able to carry this forward and just build upon what you've created One final surprise for you, Rachel. 
I put together a blooper reel. I save a lot of <laughs> the gags and just like funny moments that happen during narration. So here's a little bit of what listeners don't get to hear in these recording sessions um, over the years. So Rachel, enjoy this. Great. Okay. All good. I'm sure your brain is yeah. fine. Oh my gosh, these telemarketers. One in Wichita, we're rich. <laughs> Rachel Injustice. <laughs> it's clever. Thank you, thank you. Get out of here. <laughs> Sorry. I just feel like Satan is in this car. Zoinks! <gasps> Holy cabooses! <laughs> Although I actually never fold my socks. You've heard of Elf on a Shelf? Here's Vader on a Tater. <laughs> Boba Fett last week? It nothing was... happened! What are you talking about? What are you, t- what are you talking about? Still nothing happened? Sorry, I was doing my push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Bowels. Catastrophic mouths. <laughs> so she said. <laughs> it's like you have a beaver in your brain. Welcome to the elephant room. Elephant dun, dun, room. Dun, 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 dun. What is a woman? What do you think is a woman? Makes a woman. How did you say it? <laughs> so Francis continued his his um yeah, being a woman. My voice is so scratchy. <clears throat> he still yeah. works helping welcome to in of burn. <laughs> True ties. You don't say. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we said Hoover Dam. Can you do it this way? Become there the were claims. The insurrection on the accommodators. Seven years. Gee, Paul. No. Do you want me to cut my line again? Is that okay? Oh, this episode's a struggle. Okay. It's your last time to do the credits. Are you ready? <sighs> yeah. This All is right. it. Here we go. Okay. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Rachel Zabo, who has been our media director and producer and who, as she departs from us, wants to make one thing very clear. And I can whip any man along the Ohio River. Anna Tran is our audio engineer. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Pottington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, and Hammock. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30. Through the areas of service, community, and discipleship, You'll grow in your faith and your life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise. Goodbye, Rachel. Goodbye, Rachel. Goodbye, Rachel. Sayonara.